0: Today, I am joined by Michael Bailey. Uh, Michael is a psychologist, a behavioral geneticist, a professor at Northwestern University, and the author of The Man Who Would Be Queen, um, and also someone considered to be uh, one of the most unethical uh, sexologists in history by one of the websites of his detractors. Welcome, Michael. You've come to the right place. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Yes, it's um, it's it's interesting to... Um, to kind of peruse, uh, you know, what's, what's on, on the internet about you, because I would say 90% of the, of the articles and resources are about your academic career. They're the actual text of scientific papers you've worked on, you know, relatively respectable reviews of your work in the New York times. Um, but then there are also, you know, little, little, I think just websites created just, just for the purpose of, of, uh, I don't know, taking you down. Um, and you've been you've been at this game for a while, because your book came out, if I'm not mistaken, in, in 2003. Um, and even back then, while transgender issues, transsexualism wasn't really on the radar for most people, I mean, I don't think anyone that I know would have even imagined that this was a thing. Uh, you were already writing about it. You were, you know, essentially cataloging the status quo on the science of transsexualism and transgenderism. So I wonder how you see the last twenty years, given the fact that you've been someone so so important in the movement. Like, how does it surprise you that this is something that now I don't know <laughs> different family members discuss over dinner that this is the topic du jour.
1: Yeah, it's it's very surprising. I I never would have expected it when I wrote my book. In fact, you know, and I sent it around to first get an agent and then to potential publishers and so on, got a lot of feedback like, hey, this is really interesting, but not really something that people would be interested in widely. Uh, And I remember um, a friend reacting like, I would never read a book like that. And yeah, here we are in the last five years. Um, Transgender is certainly one of the big two or three issues in academia and and culture, along with race, of course, and yeah, those are the big two, I would guess. And how did we get from there to here? Well, I'm not sure that I have a complete theory of that, but I can probably speculate a bit. But I do want to clarify something. You said that uh, if you search, you find these little websites about uh, how evil I was. Those are not little websites. Those are big websites that <laughs> they, I inspired quite. you know, the, uh, resurrection of complete websites, trying to, uh, basically elaborate how, uh, evil a person I am and how wrong I am. So yes. And I think they're still there for people who want to find them.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's, uh, you know, obviously, kind of a, a rundown of, of of all your crimes, and <laughs> it's uh, it's it is interesting to see how much energy has been poured into this. Um, it, it's you know, for, it's about as thoroughly unconvincing as uh, as you know the the title, the tagline that you're the most unethical sexologist in history sounds extremely empirically testable, <laughs> but <laughs> um, I mean, the, I think that the main problem that these uh, activists have with you is. Correct me if I'm wrong here, it's the fact that you've been advocating in a way this, uh, this, this kind of theory of kind of auto, autogynephilia and uh, there's kind of um, a taxonomy of, of transsexualism, especially male transsexualism that is not accepted by the current uh, more high-powered members of the, of the transsexual community. So they would like this type of research, this type of knowledge to not be common knowledge. Is that correct?
1: That is absolutely correct. And uh, if you would like, I could uh, spend a little time explaining yes, the ideas absolutely. that. Um, so, autogynephilia is it's a paraphilia, which is a sexual interest, uh, and it's quite unusual. It's hard for many people to understand. It is a man's sexual arousal by the idea or fantasy that he is a woman or possesses a woman's body or the activity of imitating a woman, like cross-dressing. And autogonophilia is one of the two main motivations why natal males, that is, uh, people born male, have transitioned to women. Uh, The other being uh, very feminine homosexuality, So, Ray Blanchard is the scientist. He's also a psychologist who came up with this two types theory. And I knew Ray. I I know Ray. Ray's a friend. But I I knew Ray for uh, several years before I learned about his theory. Uh, And I had already been interested in transsexualism and I had already been saying things about transsexualism. And I was frankly uh, embarrassed when I learned about the theory that I didn't know about it because, you know, I was a scholar, uh, an alleged scholar anyway, of sexuality. And autokinophilia is completely different than most people understand transsexualism, which was, transsexualism was the word that we were working with until fairly recently when it's become, for some reason, politically incorrect, which means I will keep using it. Uh, Transsexualism is the word for people who want to change sex. So an autogonophilic transsexual is a person born male who typically discovers during adolescence that they're really sexually aroused by the activity of putting on panties, or bra, lingerie, and generally looking at themselves in a mirror and typically masturbating. Nobody teaches them this. They discover it on their own. And a subset of them become adult cross-dressers. They may even like to go out in public dressed as a woman. And a subset of them will transition they will actually get medical treatment to become trans women. These people are all attracted to women. They're not attracted to men. You can think of autogonophilia as inverted heterosexuality. For some reason in these people, the external attraction to a woman gets inverted inside. Their primary attraction is is to the idea of themselves as a woman. and they will uh, the the imagery that they like and and what they might put on themselves is analogous to what a straight man likes in terms of uh, you know I, I guess this is dating me uh, like a playboy uh, or or a penthouse, you know, a, a very very sexualized woman wearing, you know, uh, lingerie and, and a garter belt and so on.
0: Yeah. None of these women, uh, the trans women, are very fashionable. The, the kind of older in life uh, autogynophile typology, they, they all look a little bit <laughs> kooky from my mm-hmm. female mm-hmm. perspective, but yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. So I said before there are two types, and I, I should say a little about the, the other type. Which Ray Blanchard called a homosexual male to female transsexual. And it's a little confusing because homosexual, what does that mean? You know, it's homosexual with respect to their natal sex. So they were born male. They like men. They like men only. They have no interest at all in women. Any male to female transsexual who has any interest sexually in a woman is not this type. And they are feminine from early on, childhood. These are the little boys who uh, say they want to be girls. They are dressing as girls uh, as four years old and so on. They are just effortlessly and extremely feminine. And they do not exhibit autogonophilia at all. They are not sexually aroused by cross-dressing. They cross-dress because they like girls' things, and they like women's things, and they feel more comfortable as women. I knew transsexuals of both types, and I think that that enabled me to write this book. I think uh, most people, if they know any transsexuals, they know only one type, and unless uh, somebody uh, is in the gay community, deep in the gay community, they probably know autogonophilic. Transsexuals who are more common in the west anyway mm,
0: that's interesting That split between the West because a lot of times in discourse about transgenderism there comes this you know the the fact that this is relatively widespread cultural practice in some you know they, they always bring up Iran where you know they, even the, the the kind government subsidizes this obviously the backstory is not explained why the kind government might do this but you know, you could get uh, subsidized sex change surgery in Iran because homosexuality is punishable by death. So, yeah, there there, there are there are cultural. Um, you know, it's not not a limited to to a Western phenomenon, um, but um, is this? I mean, how how old is this? Because uh, you know, it it does seem like this is has sprung out of almost nothing into the cultural mainstream. And even though maybe in the 90s, people were, you know, it was kind of the the punchline to a joke that there's a woman in a dress or something like that. It was, you know, a, the Punch and Judy type situation, kabuki thing. You know, there's a, a little bit of knowledge that this was out there, but it wasn't a thing. It was, you know, very much back alley stuff. Now it's in the middle of culture. I mean, how how deep do the roots of this phenomenon go? Is this as old as the human species or, you know, do you know anything about the, the history of it?
1: Well, it, it's definitely not new, and th- there is probably uh, a spectrum of autogynophilia and of, of autogonophilic intensity. Let's say, from something that a man might feel mildly aroused by the idea of cross-dressing, he might say cross-dress, try cross-dressing once or twice, to very intense autogynephilia where somebody actually wants to live their lives imitating a, a woman. And I suspect the latter degree is is pretty rare. Uh, but there are historical examples of that. I believe it was a French uh, man from two or three centuries ago who seemed to be like that. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm not prepared with that person's name or history right now. I could I I can find you a link to this person's history. Uh, And certainly um, this was happening earlier in the uh, 20th century, uh, long before the current uh, thing. It used to be something that was a contraindication, thought to be a contraindication for sex reassignment surgery. So uh, autogonophilic males would often lie. And say that they were not autogynephilic, but yes, they were attracted to men, and so on, in order to get approved for surgery.
0: Is the fear there that homosexual transsexualism is the, the real transsexualism, and autogynephilia is just kind of a quirk, uh, and that uh, you know people shouldn't shouldn't enable this quirk? I mean, what what is your feeling about about that about this division?
1: That that was certainly the justification among uh, gender clinicians fifty years ago. So well, yeah, let me make some clarifications about my own feelings about autogonophiles and uh, transsexuals in general and so on. First, I want to make it clear that I am not the foe of autogonophiles. What I'm a, a foe of, I suppose, uh, as a scholar, is of the denial of autogonophilia, even among transgender persons who don't want to be thought of as autogynophilic. Uh, and I think that my critics back in 2003, four five, they were mainly autogonophiles who were in denial of their autogonophilia. And I, I think that, you know, that, that they tried to shut me up. I have been in contact. I've met, I've known, I've been, in contact with many autogonophilic males, who were grateful to learn about the theory of arogenophilia because it finally allowed them to understand themselves, and it's a very, it's a very weird thing. It's a very, you know, in many of these people, it's very motivating. Yet it doesn't map on to any common sexuality. They're not unambiguously heterosexual even though they like women. They're not homosexual even though they often do fantasize about having sex with men. Not because they're attracted to men, but because that fantasy makes them feel like a woman. That's a very common fantasy among autogynophiles. And, in fact, a lot of them do have that experience of having sex with men. But, uh, I find uh, autogonophiles who are not in denial uh, to be actually often admirable because they're very open-minded. They're doing their best to live uh, a satisfying life given this, uh, you know, it's a burden. <laughs> you know, it's something that would one would rather not have uh, because it just complicates life too much. So... It is the denial of autogonophilia that seems to lead to the toxic consequence of having to shut other people up, having to force people to believe, or at least act like they believe, this alternative explanation that these people are just like women, they're naturally women, and so, on.
0: yeah, it's it's hard to make a, a social justice case out of a, a kind of a sexual fetish community um, at the moment. So I can understand why, you know, there's much more status tied into being an oppressed minority that, you know, is just being um, not allowed to flower by the general community than, you know. Just another another of of the fetishes, you know. You don't want to be like the guys with the feet. You want to be like you know Martin Luther King, if you can. So,
1: absolutely right. And uh, even back when I wrote my book, the press and most other academics couldn't deal with autogonophilia. They it just it made them uncomfortable, uh, and they preferred, including academics who worked with transsexuals, including academics who worked with transsexuals who were obviously going to anybody who knew anything, they the these clinicians needed for their own sake to believe this false narrative about why these guys were seeking sex reassignment.
0: Yeah, do you think there is? Um, I mean, there's a, there's a huge industry that's grown out of um, kind of sex reassignment. You know, the surgeries, the the drugs. Um, do you think there's any kind of more um, maybe dark incentives baked into what's going on right now. That that might be pushing this stuff. Might be you know um, lobbying for this type of uh, legislation for liberalization of all sorts of things that were were off limits up till now. Because it, it does seem like this is a a very concerted push from all directions. Everyone's involved, and there's only one narrative. And you know you're you're a terrible person if you deny it.
1: It's a dark confluence. Uh, but I, I, so I think these people mostly believe what they say. They, you know, they believe, and who are these people? We're talking about gender clinicians who are pro-transition, who won't even consider alternative treatments and explanations. You know, it's all everybody's transgender who says that they're transgender. I think they, they believe it, but it, it's also you know it's nice for them that they get paid to uh help people transition so and and both of those uh facts make it harder to change one's mind you know if if you're getting paid to do something it's hard to consider uh that maybe you shouldn't be
0: exactly and yeah, a lot of these people just specialize in one one type of mastectomy one type of reassignment surgery and you know it's a, it's a bit hard to 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 walk back a specialization um it it is also interesting to me that um like you've noted before most of the people who are public and visible um about transgender issues tend to be um autogynepholic males, and you can kind of see that they're also interesting, or maybe this is just kind of selection bias that you see these guys. But they're very kind of people who used to work in very masculine areas, you know, people in the military and business, CEOs, like uh, very, very um, male typical behaviors, except for the fact that they wake up at I don't know forty five and decide that it's time to it's time for a very big change. So, um, is is this a a pattern? that's uh, visible to you as well? Or is this just the fact that, you know, there are many, many people like this and the most visible people will obviously be the ones that are in high, high places like Rachel Levine or who knows, uh, yeah, big, big names.
1: So I uh, don't think that there's any correlation between autogynophilia and having feminine interests at all. I think autogynophilic males, their interests as far as occupations and so on, Tend to be as masculine as other males. And so it's not surprising to me that we would see military, ex military, or current military people. We probably see more than we would expect. And I do think that is probably a selection bias. You know, leader is going to lead. So the stereotype uh, most associated with uh, autogonophilia is actually uh, computer science. For for some odd reason, and you know it, we we want to study this more uh, objectively, but we haven't uh, been able to yet. But that is the stereotype that autogonophilic transsexuals are highly disproportionately computer scientists, which is one of the most masculine occupations. But.
0: Yeah. I mean, this is a well-known and uh, accepted here at the Subversive Podcast. Uh, we're not fighting it. Um, they can have it. Uh, I also, uh, maybe this is a bit, you know, not necessarily very scientific, a bit more esoteric, but it does feel like s- something correlates with an attraction to, to d- disembodiment. You know, being a computer programmer, you're essentially, you know, relegating yourself to being a brain in a vat. You're just, you know, Sending out <laughs> impulses, receiving them, st- structuring data sets—you know, moving pieces around in, in kind of virtual space. You're not necessarily very connected to your body. Your, um, you know, you you, it's easy to see yourself as a meat suit. It's easy to see yourself as customizable, especially because a lot of these guys uh, have interests in in fantasy role play in in games that you know do exactly that. They take you out of your body and into this character type life. And I can see how someone who does that for years, decades upon decades, can see, okay, this situation that I'm in is not very comfortable. You know, I I feel dysphoric. You know, even I feel dysphoric about stuff in my life, essentially, you know, sometimes I have a bad time and I could maybe blame it on the meat suit. And then you might want to start customizing. And it seems accessible if you're already in that mindset.
1: So the developmental process that, I believe, happens with autogonophilic transsexualism is as follows. First, I believe autogonophilia happens, and that happens during adolescence, same as other sexual feelings. And it typically, most often happens the way I said, where a boy will discover it turns him on to imitate a woman and wear sexy underclothing and so on. And that hypersexual aspect of autogynophilia lasts you know, just analogous to hypersexual for male development general, generally, you know, adolescence and, and on. But as that persists, again, a subset of autogynophilic individuals, they start creating a female identity and, and becoming attached to it. And so it, it is no longer strictly sexual all the time. But it is something that does preoccupy them, and not just when they want to have an orgasm.
0: So it's the creation of a of a different character, of a different role, essentially. Um, yeah, that's. I think in in one of your papers, um, you note that there is kind of a third type, maybe the kind of the asexual transsexual. It sounds like like that. You know, someone who's kind of transcended the primarily sexual domain that this gen came from. And then they just they just fell in love with the character so much that it's not really about sex. They just kind of like being Cheryl and uh they they like the whole customization of Cheryl.
1: Yeah. The um, an autogonophilic person who is so autogonophilic that there is no lust available to anybody on the outside. It's all interdirected. They may think of themselves as asexual because they're not Attracted other people only to this inverted self. now autogynophilia is the most uh, and and autogonophilic transsexualism are the most common manifestations of a more general phenomenon which we're studying and it's related to uh, something we call erotic target identity inversion. The general thing is that. It's the inversion of an erotic target inside. And it's not only women that get inverted. They're the most common because most men are attracted to women. But another kind of target that uh, gets inverted, you've probably heard of it, there are men who want to become amputees. They want to amputate a healthy limb. Well, if you study these guys... Turns out, guess who do you, Guess who they're attracted to? Amputees. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, man. Yeah, and uh, so we have a paper uh, under preparation. We've studied men attracted to amputees. We've studied men attracted to animals. Guess what happens to a subset of them?
0: Become furries.
1: <laughs> and uh, men who are attracted to morbidly obese people. Guess what happens mm-hmm. to a subset of them?
0: become morbidly obese, yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So these, these, uh, people, I think that these three categories that we're studying have more in common with autogonophilic males than autogonophilic males have in common with the other kind of transsexual. I don't think that autogonophilia has anything in common with femininity really. And that's one of the main reasons that the, uh, People who tried to ruin me back in 2003 did so. I, I uh, injured them narcissistically. It's, uh, they have, um, it's very important to them to think of themselves as really like women. This theory says that they're not, and I, I believe the theory.
0: Yeah, I I believe my lying eyes. <laughs> yeah. when, when yeah. noticing some some of these uh some of these people, I mean, you can see that there's effort in in this uh surgery and everything, but just it, it is just sad in the sense that, you know, just from from the skull shape to just the proportions of the face to everything, you know, like the the wonderful cover you have for your book. I mean, this is essentially the the general feeling that that cover evokes is every time a normal person who's not completely indoctrinated you know beholds an autogynephalic male um who you know is trying everyone's trying to to protect their feelings but you know it is what it is <laughs> unfortunately
1: yeah and you know gay men um are also not women even very feminine yeah. gay men uh but very feminine gay men i think are naturally feminine i don't think anybody taught RuPaul, at least uh, until RuPaul started studying drag. Uh, but RuPaul was a very feminine boy before he was a. Right, I I don't know if RuPaul is now a she or he, but before RuPaul was RuPaul, RuPaul was a very feminine boy. And I think born that way. And in that sense, I do think it, it, someday we might find that there are parts of the brain that make RuPaul RuPaul that are kind of like a woman's brain. But I think that when we are able to know more about autogynophilia and its representation in the brain, we will not see anything similar between women and autogynophiles. Another uh, common belief asserted by some Autogonophiles and especially those in denial is that well women are autogynophilic too uh, meaning that uh, women are also turned on by the idea of being women and wearing sexy clothes and so on and this came from a study by a guy named Charles Moser in which he uh, asked basically that you know imagine you're like getting dressed for a date and you're wearing sexy clothes, does that, is that sexually arousing to you? Well, a few of these, his respondents, I think he had like 30 respondents said yes. But uh, recently during the past year, we did a big study of this question, uh, comparing autogonophilic males to natal females and to natal males without autogonophilia. And the differences between autogynophiles and natal females were huge. Natal females do not sit around and say, oh, I'm so turned on by the idea of being a woman. You know, it's just, it's not a thing.
0: No, th- th- there is something that I think is is similar. I mean, you know, obviously not speaking from science, but just kind of was observations throughout my life and just being a woman. It's this idea of kind of being regarded from a, from the outside, you know, the idea of, of, of a man seeing you as attractive and that, that is, you know, exciting for a woman, you know, that's why the whole makeup, the whole thing and the whole process of it is, is interesting. Uh, but the, the, end result is you kind of, you don't arouse yourself. The idea that someone else finds you irresistible, that's what's arousing in, the, in that whole context.
1: Right. Right. Yes. And you know the the questions on the autogonophilia scale, the the true one that Blanchard wrote, include: Have you ever been sexually aroused by the idea that you are a woman? <laughs> you know, <laughs> by by the fact that you have a female body? Does that you know?
0: Yeah, that's where you can kind of see. You. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, but you know, it's uh, I I appreciate them trying. <laughs> Nice try. Yeah. Um what what do you think about um you know because th- th- it's it's been documented there's definitely um quite a lot of kind of viral spreading of certain types of transgenderism on the female side. I think uh, Abigail Shire wrote wrote a book about this. Um and uh, that that it kind of propagates almost um almost like a meme, you know, people hang out in these circles, you know, all the all the girls in the class are suddenly transgender. Um but what do you think about this as a more general thesis? Because yes, let's say teenage girls are easily influenced, but the idea that having all of these paraphilias, you know, out there in pornography, on the internet, easily accessible by everyone of every age, at every stage of development, you know, I know a lot of parents are not exactly clued up or clued in about all the pornography that their children are watching. So uh, people are exposed to a lot more of this imagery and these concepts, and these possibilities than ever before. And do you think that this might m- push the spectrum into, you know, people actually wanting to live out this stuff more than back in a, in a time where these fantasies were just not available? You know, this, this type of, no people weren't incepted with these ideas from, from, from the outside.
1: So, rapid onset gender dysphoria, which uh, you've had guests talk about, is a certainly a thing. And that is, um, I believe that many, perhaps most, perhaps almost all of the adolescent girls whose gender dysphoria began during adolescence would not have transitioned even 15 years ago, wouldn't even have gender dysphoria 15 years ago. I think it's entirely a social construction, entirely a a new phenomenon. But I think you're asking about like autogonophilia. I understand that uh, autogonophilia is associated with a kind of pornography called sissy porn, which even though I study uh, autogynophilia and I'm not, you know, I've watched porn only for work, but uh, I've never, I don't think I've ever come across sissy c- 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 porn. I think you'd actually have to seek it out. And if somebody seeks it out, I'm suspicious that it is an exogenous cause. That is, it's, you know, I wouldn't be this way if I hadn't seen it. I think, you know, it's more likely that somebody was looking for
0: it. Yeah,
1: I I do think that it is plausible that social, there is a cultural influence on the decision to transition among even more traditional kinds of Transsexuals, though, autogynephilic and homosexual transsexuals. And it, it would be like this being trans is cool now. It's not something to be ashamed of. And if you have the desire, you're more likely to find somebody encouraging you to transition than to find you discouraging you, at least outside your immediate family.
0: Yeah. And it's, it's a, I'm not saying an easy way, but it is one way of, you know, someone who might be like a, a, a white male, but not in a, in a, an extremely good social position, you know, kind of a low status type person who, um, you know, maybe feels, like I said, a bit disembodied with things to get a different type of status, to get into a community that, you know, might find him or her more, more interesting and more, more compelling. So, yeah, I mean, I can, I can understand that there are lots of incentives like that. You know, if something's high status, uh, the people will come, they'll, they'll gather around it somehow.
1: Yeah. I think that the autogonophilic explanation to some autogonophilic males automatically takes the status away from autogonophilia. So if, if that's the reason why I'm doing it, then I don't want to do it. But not all. There are some autogonophilic males who whose um, desire to transition remains even after they've accepted autogonophilia as an explanation for their desires. For those people, I'm not sure it's a bad decision. (laughs) You know, if you know why you want it, if you know the costs and the benefits, then I'm not going to raise much of an objection. I'm more concerned about people who don't understand why they want to do it. I'm more concerned about autogonophilic males who've not even heard of the concept of autogynophilia or who angrily reject it.
0: Yeah. And uh, I know there's a a large community of detransitioners in kind of the, the the female space where you kind of have these girls who started on puberty blockers, maybe they had mastectomies, things like that early on, you know, in their teenage years. uh, And then they realized, oh, this is a grave mistake and they're trying to wind back the clock and, um, but is there such a thing in kind of autogynephilic males? I, I could imagine that you know having having the surgery is a very serious step to take, and if you're doing it for the wrong reasons or you don't have a you know a good picture of 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 you know your mind of a good theory of mind of what what exactly is going on with you, you might have second thoughts after the fact. But I, I haven't really heard about many of these cases. I mean,
1: the the uh, data from uh, about so called regrets people who wish they hadn't had sex reassignment surgery. Most data that we have are relatively old, let's say 30, 40 years, and they're mostly from clinics that were very careful and didn't let people transition unless they had had a couple of years living as the other sex uh, to make sure that that's what they wanted. And those data did suggest a a higher rate of regrets among autogynophiles versus homosexual, transsexuals, but it wasn't high. It was, let's say, maybe 10% for autogonophiles regretted versus, you know, 3% for the other kind. But we're in a whole different world now. Nobody is making people live for two years as the other sex before they get medical intervention and it wouldn't surprise me to have more regrets when in fact i will ex- i expect that we will have more regrets among the adolescent females who transition at least as far as autogynophiles, i'm not sure i'm not sure what we'll find
0: yeah yeah, I mean, on, only time will tell. I think this uh, on on mass uh, surgery campaign has, I think, only got going in the last few years. So, uh, yeah, it's, it takes a while for people to 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 wake up from from the party. Um, there's a, there's another subject that you've you've written on, and that might be even more controversial, especially for my audience. It's um, pedophilia, which you know, on the right is a bit uh, is a bit of a ex- extra spicy thing, and I understand why. I mean, I'm uh, viscerally, also very affected by it. I've, I have children. Uh, it's you know <laughs> not something I want to think about. Um, and I I understand why people um, have this visceral reaction because yeah, there's no deeper instinct than that of protecting a child, especially for someone who has one. So, um, but you are maybe take a little bit of a kinder tone here because you have studied you you know people who have these instincts. You study the phenomenon. You're a bit more closer to. The field uh, in which these things happen to me, these are these are monsters and projections on the walls, and I don't. I hope I don't know any metaphiles, so I have you know I, I don't. I cannot. Um, I have no shred of empathy for for this phenomenon. So that's kind of where where I'm starting from. So you know, I'll let you just just say why why maybe I should soften my case, or why why there should be any sort of uh, attention, positive or you know interest paid to this field.
1: Okay, yeah, uh, thank you. The first thing that I w- want to say is that we must distinguish two things pedophilia, which is a sexual interest in children, from child molestation, which is sexually abusing children. Not all pedophiles molest children. And I am aware of a large group of pedophiles who have organized to mutually support each other. So that they will live child celibate lives. They will never touch children. And I find that, uh, I find it admirable because, uh, you know, they do have their, their desire, their sexual attraction to children is just as strong as heterosexual men's attraction to women, homosexual men's attraction to men. And they are also, you know, they, they have lived in shame and, and so on. And it's not that I think that they should be proud to be pedophiles. I just think that they should not be shamed for having feelings that they're not going to act on and that they're going to live good lives despite of.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's that's all, all, all sounds good on the face of it. I think the the... The, the the primary pushback to that would be that, you know, this, these things are at least, you know, stigmatized for a reason in the sense that it, it feels like, you know, am I, am I going to trust that this is the case, you know, cause this is a bit of a honor system type thing where they just, you know, they, they're organizing, they say they're not going to do it. I'm like, how can, <laughs> you know, how can I be sure, you know, how, how much of an integration into society can you allow, um, you know, um, you know, maybe there is a case to be made that, okay, if this is your sin, you might need to be exiled from from the rest of us in one way or another. There might be, you know, chemical castration, you know, call me crazy, there, that might be an option. There are different methods, different levers that we can pull, but there has to be a clear line between you and my children that has to be enforced 24-7. And I don't, I, I mean, I'm a nice person, but I'm not that nice.
1: Yeah, I don't think that they're lobbying to babysit your children or or to live uh, as a community of pedophiles who are known to be pedophiles. I think that they're mainly wanting to just support each other and be left alone. And, and believe me, there are people trying to harm them as a community, which I see as very unfortunate. Again, I think that we should There's stigma against harming children, and we should keep that. I'm not sure stigma against attraction to children per se going to make any difference because I I I think whether uh, a male is going to be sexually attracted to children or not is determined by the time he's born. And I I want to bring a dilemma up to you, and I want to do it as sensitively as I can. Um. So give me a moment. I, I know you've recently had a child. Right. Uh, so, But I don't want to talk about your child. Let's talk about a mother who has a son who she raised, and he's been a good son, and she loves him. And it turns out at adolescence, he discovers he's attracted to children. Every pedophile in the world had a mother. And I'm pretty sure every pedophile in the world had a mother who didn't want him to be a pedophile. What would she want for this son? Would she want him to be demonized and set off from society? She surely wouldn't want him to act on his feelings. Or would she want him to be helped in the best way possible? There's no help that will make him not attracted to children. It just, you know, people have tried. We don't know how to do it. it, it, it someday it might involve some kind of brain surgery, but we, we don't know how to do it. Uh, your example about sex drive reduction, castration, chemical castration, that can help somebody who has, who's at risk. In like fact, my uh, first introduction to this topic was that I was an expert witness for uh, a pedophile who had actually molested two girls by using a toy gun to get them into his car to touch his penis. Uh, and then he, uh, he himself chose to be surgically castrated, which I thought was a good idea for him. But And I, I was for a while uh, thinking that that would be a general intervention for pedophiles. But the more I've learned by studying these guys uh, the more I've recognized that many of them don't need that; they're fine. They're not going to molest children. They're they're not tempted enough.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, if if there is a reliable measure of of not tempted enough, you know, and that's you know been proven. <laughs> time it again, I might take that instead of. But yeah, you know, I'm I, I personally am not averse to to using whatever social. Tools or even you know biological tools to, to to solve this problem, but it is it is a problem, and it is you know that there is also a little bit of um, a little bit of hysteria now related to pedophilia, and I can already hear <laughs> somebody is shrieking. No, it's there's not enough hysteria. There is a little bit in the sense that it feels to me like it's it's the last acceptable boundary. We have a culture of consent, and because all boundaries are off, you you have these last little ruins of a, of kind of a a virtuous society and the age of consent is an, an important red line that even people on the left, people on the right seem to always converge on to kind of hold on in, in the consent culture that, you know, it's, it's the last vestige of something solid. And it always comes back to, you know, age gap discussions, you know, how big should the age gap be? All sorts of little negotiations around this red line seem to be the, the what's going on in discourse now. So
1: you, Yeah, but, but before you go on, you're, you're young so you don't remember. Maybe you've heard or read about it but back in the 1990s we had a general epidemic that I think was actually uh, larger and more harmful than the ROGD epidemic. It was the epidemic of recovered memories of sexual abuse and Uh, an associated smaller epidemic of multiple personality disorder. These were um, typically women in therapy who came to believe during therapy that their fathers typically had uh, molested them over years when they, they had never remembered this. They'd never thought this until they went into therapy and
0: I personally know someone someone like that you
1: know up okay. to this
0: day she maintains it but just rec- exactly recovered memory type
1: thing anyway yeah the, 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 these these memories are false uh, and have ruined uh, many a family and I think that they are uh, a result of hysteria about related to pedophilia and child molestation uh, there have been other there have been people sent to prison who are innocent. There have been people put on trial. There have been, you know, we we, we must remember as, as a society, and, you know, I'm counting you, 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 whatever America does, it's going to get to you eventually. Many a people have been harmed by this hysteria about uh, childhood sexual abuse and i i think more people have been harmed than protected by it actually but of course that's a i guess a uh, a discussion to be had and this probably takes us too far off track
0: yeah i mean it's 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 a sad thing because i you know you you can feel in in the discourse and in and when when you're talking to people that there are certain areas that are off limits and a lot large part of the discussion around pedophilia is off limits um, and like I said, in a way I understand it because, um, you know, to, to bring it back into the esoteric, I feel like a lot of these things, you know, if if they're invoked too much, if they're talked about too much, they kind of, they have a way of being sucked into the discourse and self-replicating in a way, you know, there's, there's a lot of talk in kind of the more esoteric corners of the right wing about demonic possession, about demons and things like that. And some of these things feel like they have some some of that quality that, you know, you're invoking these dark and terrible things. And, you know, like I said, as a mother, sometimes I just, <laughs> not necessarily, I don't want to delve into this, but as a sex researcher and people in your field, I think should, and that is your role. And, you know, it should be very much, open to uh, to uh, study because it's important. I mean, it's important even in the implications of protecting my children and, you know, the mother in your example's children. So, yeah, it's it's necessary. So, like I said, I don't think everyone should be on this beat every day if possible.
1: Thank you. Unlike some of the other issues we've been discussing, there is really no group who's advocating that pedophiles should be able to act on their desires except for a small group of pedophiles themselves sure you can find them uh who say there's nothing wrong with it and so on but i don't think that's even a slippery slope
0: yeah i mean like i said you know i've uh, like myself and probably most of the people listening to this have not had enough uh contact with uh with the advocacy and exactly we you know what, what's being talked about because of this you know this this Feeling of of cosmic horror that that you get when you even contemplate the fact that you know there are people out there thinking this man they must they must be completely completely monstrous and I guess you know the the reality is that they're they're people with with monstrous uh, tendencies but like you said they don't necessarily act on them so yes well. I on, on this cheery note, because I tend to <laughs> tend to wrap things up on, on very happy subjects. Uh, but I think this is not necessarily a, a dark subject. I think, you know, the, the conclusion here is that um it's an area of study. It is not studied enough. And, you know, um maybe more awareness should be raised. <laughs> Though that's not always a cure, but yeah, maybe people should understand it.
1: I'm I'm happy with that. Yeah. yeah.
0: So, um, I want to ask you the question of the show. Um, do, do you have a uh, subversive thinker or, or multiple that uh, that you'd like to recommend to our
1: audience? I do. Yes. Uh, been looking forward to this. Uh, first, just a brief introduction. When I was in college, uh, my roommate was a philosophy major, Arnie, and Arnie was very influential on my thinking. I often wanted to kill him, and it's because. He was very good at challenging me, challenge, challenging my uh, weak suppositions, and, and that's, that makes people mad. And I think that that's a lot of what's going on in the culture wars now, is people are getting mad because people are challenging them to think. And I think that philosophers, when they are doing the best kind of philosophy where they actually are bothering to learn about a topic... And think hard about it. They can be very useful. So I'm going to recommend, and I know this is cheating, but four different philosophers, and I'll do it quickly. First is a guy named Michael Humer, who has a Substack called Fake News N O U S. A recent essay he wrote that I thought was really good is called Elon Musk is better than you. <laughs> provocative title. Uh, Another one, Can Teaching the Truth Be Racist? Also good. Uh, The Croatian philosopher Nevin Sesardik, he is an older philosopher, I think he might be emeritus now, but he wrote a fantastic book called Making Sense of Heritability about the IQ, genetics, literature, and I thought he did a great job dealing with a lot of obfuscation that both philosophers and academic experts engage in to have people avoid this topic. So I recommend his book. There's a young philosopher, I think he's really smart, named Nathan Kofnes, who uh, is currently at Cambridge, and we're hoping that he manages to have a career despite many attempts to cancel him. Uh, And he's uh, written about how we should study the most controversial topics. And that's totally what I support. And finally, there's a guy named Alex Byrne, B Y R N E, at MIT. Alex's uh, work has mostly been of the technical philosophy genre. And I don't read much technical philosophy, really. But I heard rumors that he's writing a book on gender and transgender and i've heard rumors that it's excellent and very readable and really going to be like the best treatment of this domain so that's it
0: excellent yeah i i hadn't heard of three of these uh nathan Kaufness, i want to have on the show hopefully soon i'm uh, i'm aware of his work yeah he's 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 great um yeah i'm um I'm I'm glad that you had so many good recommendations and so much insight onto into things that um, we we either tend to avoid or maybe we look at uh, too intensely recently, <laughs> like the transsexual debate, uh, and it's it's easy to miss some of the some of the important nuances. And also the fact that we're talking about people in the end. I mean, the people who are suffering with things that they might prefer not to suffer with, and this includes, you know, everyone that we we, we discussed. So, yeah, thank you so much for that, and thank you for your work, uh, and thank you for putting up with all the bullshit, because yeah, it's it's been you know almost decades now that you've you know had to deal with with all this. So, well,
1: and thank you for doing this. I've found uh, several subversive people. Uh, through you. And I really enjoy your podcast.
0: Thank you so much.
1: And thank you for having me.
0: Thank you so much for coming on, Michael. If you like what you're hearing, want to see where I take it, and maybe want early access episodes, bonus episodes, access to the AMA, or you just want to support the cause of dissident speech or my work in general, head to my Patreon at patreon.com slash AK subversive. Your donations are what keeps the lights on and makes the show possible, so thank you.